Good morning. So I just want to first start off by saying thank you once again for giving me this incredible privilege to be able to come and preach God's word to you today. Um, I, as I've been studying, have really come to understand that this is such a relevant passage for all of us today. And although it was written so many years ago, its relevancy doesn't stop back then. It is for us here today. And, and I want to start by saying why I think that is. I've had the incredible privilege of being a founding member of this church and the other blessing of being an elder for six of those years. And with that, it's given me an, a really good opportunity to know so many of you in this room right now really deeply. And over the course of the last six months, I've had many conversations with so many of you that are going through some of the most trying and difficult times that you've ever experienced. And what I want to say to you is, these verses are for you. They're for you. And then there's others that I know for a fact are sitting here and going, by God's kindness and generosity, he's given you a season of peace and of rest right now. And we want to first start off by saying, praise God that he's given you that right now. Amen? But we also have to understand, too, that that will inevitably change. And so these verses are for you, too. And so we pray, my prayer is, that these verses would be soaked up into your heart so that whether you are experiencing hard, challenging times today or tomorrow, that they would bear much fruit as you remember these verses and be encouraged through them as you go through trials and suffering. Now, what I do want to say is we will be talking a little bit about suffering. And Pastor Phil will be talking about that in the later verses of this chapter. But it's really impossible to not talk about suffering and persecution as it pertains to anything in this letter. Because as John was talking about last week, they're talking to the audience that they're being persecuted and there's going through a whole, a whole lot of things. And so what I think that Peter is trying to do here is set the tone at the very beginning. And you can't do that without understanding pain and suffering at the same point. And so with that said, I want to really begin with this, this question of if you, as I just mentioned, many of you are going through some really hard and trying times. If you were to actually write a letter to someone here at Embassy Church today that was going through one of those hard times, what would you put in that letter? What would you put in it that would encourage them in their time of suffering? Would you just kind of say, I'm really sorry to hear that you're going through that. I'm going to pray for you. I think this is such a really great thing for Embassy Church today to be thinking about. And thankfully, by God's sovereignty, we have Peter, and we get to see what he's written throughout the course of this whole entire letter and how it's just a wonderful example of how to address and talk to people who are going through really, really hard times. Those of us that are suffering, we need a boost to our hope, do we not? Now, I do want to say that he's going to acknowledge their suffering, and he's not going to downplay it, and he's not going to make it seem like it's really no big deal at all. 
He's going to acknowledge it, but then the thing that he's going to do is explain why they're suffering. And I think that's actually one of the biggest issues when people are going through suffering, they just kind of want to know why they're suffering. But the more important thing that I think that he's going to be talking about here is he's going to remind them, and I want us to latch on to this, it's that their suffering is a large part of what it means to just simply be a believer, a child of God, to anyone that has declared their allegiance to and devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, suffering goes hand in hand with that declaration. And I don't think that that's something that we often hear about. And I think it's something that we need to be reminded of. Anyone who is suffering needs hope, and they need to be reminded of that hope. And then as we will see, sometimes that hope needs to be realigned to the living hope that we have. So will you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start with verses 3, and we're going to go to verse 5. Blessed, or if you have the NIV, that's praise, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I'd like you to see this passage in three ways. It starts off with this focus on God's great mercy. That's what Peter says, right? According to his great mercy. And what he's doing is he's reminding us that God's mercy is foundational to all of his other blessings that he gives us. And then what he does is because of that great mercy, you can think of it as God is the giver of things. He gives us this present and inside of this present is the gift of new life. That's the second part that I want us to highlight, is that this new birth is the gift of God's great mercy that he has given to us. But then inside of that new life that we receive, we get three things that come from and flow along with that new life that we have as a Christian. The first one is a living hope in verse 3. The second one is a unfading inheritance in verse 5, 4, rather, and then a protected salvation in verse 5. So that's sort of the structure of how this passage is going to flow. To begin with, though, John Calvin, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this. This is why Peter wrote this letter. The main object of this letter is to raise us above the world in order that we will be prepared and encouraged for the battle of our spiritual warfare. The Christian life is a fight. It's not easy. If anyone in here tells you that the Christian life is easy, they're lying to you. Discouraging things happen. Embassy, we need to realize that when we were saved, God didn't invite us to the party just yet, but to war. So then the question has to be asked, then, how do we prepare ourselves for that war? And that's what Peter is going to be outlining us here. 
Calvin goes on to say this, for this purpose, so that we'll be prepared for the spiritual battle, the knowledge of God's benefits is of great help. That's, that's worth repeating. For this purpose, so that we'll be prepared for the spiritual battle, the knowledge of God's benefits is of great help. And so once we understand that the gifts given to us by God and we fully grasp the extent of his extreme generosity, we won't actually have to be searching frantically like some desperate individual hoping for some stroke of good luck. That's what the world does, do they not? We will then come to realize that the abundant blessings bestowed upon us by God and then we have to contemplate that's the profound significance of Christ and the blessings that come from him and him alone. And then as we do, everything else will seem trivial and worthless in comparison. Jesus will be such an immense source of joy and fulfillment, our highest treasure, that any pleasure or comfort that we get in this world without him will pale in comparison. Peter is pointing to us to something that we have in Jesus Christ that is meant to supply us for what we need to fight the fight of faith. To just live the Christian life and to face all the various problems and pressures that come along with being a believer, whether that's persecution or some other problem and trial that we might come through. So I don't know about you, but when, when I'm, and I'm assuming that when we, because I've talked to a lot of you, are faced with a significant challenge, it's really easy to be consumed by it, is it not? The problem will start to take over our thoughts, and then our attitudes, and then maybe like our thinking completely, and then we'll become obsessed over it. And then it will feel as if it's the most overwhelming obstacle that we've ever faced that's me. Moment of transparency here. That's me this last month and a half. I've experienced that. I've lost sleep over it. And I think it's just so sweet that God in his kindness has allowed me to actually study this passage for us today because it serves as just such a reminder of how the Bible urges us to resist that temptation. We are not to deny that our problems are great but we need to put them in perspective by comparing them to our great God. Peter, in this address to Christians facing adversity, he's emphasizing the importance of praising, as you see in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the first order of business. The first thing that you need to be doing is praising God. Peter starts with what, what do we call this? It's a doxology. That's what he starts with here. And he's highlighting the fact that there really is never any inappropriate time for us as believers to praise God, to offer thanks to him. Even in the midst of most profound hardship, a Christian can find any reason to give thanks. I loved what Scott prayed today. That was just a, a smidgen of things that we could be thankful for. We have Jesus. We have our salvation. We have an eternal home waiting for us. 
how much more could we have that we can be thankful for? One of the things that I tell our children a lot and the community groups that I've had the privilege of being able to serve and anyone that will listen, which is you all right now, so thank you, it's we as believers should be the most thankful people on the planet. There should be no one more thankful than us, even regardless of our circumstances. And as I was thinking through this and, 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 and meditating on it, Job came to mind. And I think it serves just really as a great poignant reminder of this truth. So th- just think about Job, right? Job gets word that all of his kids had been killed, not one or two, but every single one of them. That his house was destroyed, and then the vast majority of his wealth had been taken away from him. What was his response? How how did he respond to such travesty that happened and occurred in his life? Thankfully, we, we get to see what he did. In Job 1.21, it says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. It doesn't stop there, though. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Immediately, his first response was that he fell down and he worshipped. Many of you are aware of the extreme um, loss that our family has experienced over the last 15 months or so. And I've actually have heard this verse a few times um, as we've been going through this. And so I thought, as I was thinking about Job as it pertains to this passage, why is it that believers tend to gravitate towards this passage when we experience extreme loss or something is taken away that God has removed from our life? And I, I actually think, as I was thinking about it, it it's, it's this reason. We use it during these extreme pains of losing someone that we deeply cherish because in those moments, we must be reminded that God deserves our praise still. That even in our most profound grief, God deserves our praise. And Peter urges these Christians here who will face persecution, and in some instances, death, to to stop just for a moment and bless God. Don't do anything else. Before even continuing, take a time to praise God. Praising the Lord is appropriate at all times. And I want to bring this out. I think it's really noteworthy that a letter that's intended to support persecuted Christians starts with a doxology. Because in our culture today, we're so many individuals who, they'll just start to question the existence or the kindness or the authority of God when they're facing their own anguish or trials and distress. So it's so countercultural that Peter here then responds by praising God. He starts these trials by praising God. Don't be like the world. And don't be like people who push God aside in the midst of the hardship and pain that they have, thinking that God doesn't have a good solution for human suffering. Be like Peter, who actually, through his own experience of pain and suffering, pressed back into God to praise him. It's such a wonderful example for us to follow. So I'm just going to emphasize this one more time. 
praising our God is always appropriate at any time. Under no situation or circumstance that we can face will ever diminish God's deservingness of praise, even in the slightest. And this is the beautiful thing about this whole thing. Because our circumstances, they're going to alter, right? We call them hills and valleys, do we not? But God, he remains the same forever. Regardless of what occurs in our life today, our God is still worthy of our praise. And this is why Job was able to express what he did when he did. So, so why am I staying on praise so much? You might be asking, like, I get it, Ryan. We need to, we need to move on now. Um, here's why. He is always worthy of our praise. There's nothing in this world that even compares to him. And if our eyes and our object of what we put our hope in is not him, then we start to scramble and look for other things that will fill that one thing that we thought was going to. And what I want to say is this, that if we begin with praise, that our eyes will be lifted up to his greatness. And then that will remove the enormity of our circumstances. Let me say that one more time. That when we begin to praise, our eyes will be lifted up to the greatness of our God, which will remove the enormity of our circumstances. So then the question has to be asked, why then does God deserve our praise? Well, take a look at verse 3. And notice how it shifts from the doxology to God's mercy. The praise given to God is always rooted in his mercy towards us. And so this means that our praise should not be based on our own circumstances and situations because they will change, they'll alter, they'll go back and forth. And if our praises were completely dependent on our own circumstances, how inconsistent would that be? Instead, our praise should be based on who God is and what he has done for us. Peter highlights God's great mercy, which is the foundation of Christian praise. Our praise is a response to what God has done for us. And I, and I say, if we, if we praise a sovereign God and in times of trials and persecutions and suffering, we've had to have experienced his mercy before. We must have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that's how Peter starts us off here. He is going to talk about all the good things that we have in Christ and all the blessings of our salvation. But we have to begin and say, what is all of that predicated on? It's predicated on God's great mercy for us. And to remind you all of what that definition of mercy means, it's not getting what you deserve. So the bottom line is, we were all under the curse of sin, and we all deserve punishment, which is death. But because of Jesus' work on the cross, and because of God's great mercy for us, Jesus became that curse for us, and has given us the gift of a new life, salvation. One of my favorite books in college was a book by A.W. Tozer, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy. He defines mercy this way. 
Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender mercies of God. Forever, his mercy stands a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Because of God's boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion, God has then given us this new life, this new birth. He's breathed life into our being. We previously were dead in our transgressions. What has God accomplished? He's raised us up to a fresh vitality. I think to further illustrate this analogy, look at Ezekiel 37. We were all akin to a valley of dry bones. And just by the mere voice of God, coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he reassembled your bones and imbued them with sinew and muscle and revived you and renewed you into the existence of this land. I also think about Jesus in the the, uh, exchange that he had with Nicodemus, where he explained that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That is the gift that God has given to us. The gift of new life because of his great mercy that he has shown us. So through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has shown mercy by granting believers the gift of new birth. Which then, there's three things that we get that come along with that new life, that new birth. And the first one that we, uh, that we get is a living hope, which is received as a, as a result of being born again. So in other words, when someone is, is saved and regenerated, we are given this living hope. And I do want to take a, a little bit of time this morning. I'm going to get some water. And focus on this whole idea of living hope. And, and just probably more broadly, hope in general. And, and the reason that I feel that this is so relevant and important for us today to emphasize is because I think our modern definition of hope can actually get in the way of what it really means biblically to have hope. So I know that all of you meet with people and you have conversations with people. And during my time, and I'm sure it's the same for you all, that there's two sides of of hope. That when you talk and hear people talking about hope, that come, um, there's two sides of hope. And the two ways of talking about it. They'll be be this way. Ryan, I just don't feel very hopeful right now. And what they'll do is they'll go and talk about their circumstances. They'll go and talk about their marriage their family, their kids, their bank account, their health. They'll talk all about those things. And then on the other side of that coin, they'll, they'll be like, I hope that this event happens. I hope that this vacation happens. I hope that this promotion comes and this raise and this house sells or whatever it might be. And I have to believe that when we hear this over and over and over during the course of our lifetime that we'll begin to come to the conclusion that hope is defined simply as a feeling about something 
that is supposed to happen or not. Let me be very bold here. I want Embassy Church to hear that that is not hope. That is not hope. The Bible defines hope not as a feeling at all. It has nothing to do with how you feel in your current circumstances. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that whatever God has said or promised, he will do it. So let me repeat that because it's so worth repeating. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that whatever God has said or promised, he will do it. And I want to make sure that we emphasize the he will do it part. The other thing that we have to think about when it comes to hope is that it's always referring to something that has yet to come. It's talking about the future. Paul talks about it this way when he wrote to the Romans and he said, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so what he is saying is that you don't hope for something that you already have. That's not hope. He then goes on and says that if you do hope for what you do not yet have, that you wait for it patiently. And so what is our patience based on? Our patient hope is based on the fact that he who made the promise is good for it. And I can believe that it is to be true. That whenever God says that he will do something or, or says something about me, that it's going to happen and I don't have to worry about it. So I hope that we have a little bit of a better idea of like how the world defines hope and how the Bible defines hope. Because it's really important. Because Peter, throughout the course of this letter, is going to mention hope around six times. And so if you define your hope as just a set of circumstances that you hope happen or not, and not on God, you need to reorient that perspective and the definition of what hope really is. I think it's time that we can now move on to this very little adjective that he adds right before hope. And he uses it to describe it. What, what does he call it? He calls it a living hope. We just sang that song. It's a living hope. And so what does he mean exactly when he's talking about a living hope? Well, the answer to why he calls it that is right there in the rest of the verse. So let's read the rest of um, verse 3 or uh, 4. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's the reason that we have a living hope. It's because Jesus is alive. Because he's been raised from the dead, and because he's alive right now, our hope can also be alive. How can we, can we not see how important of a message this would be for people who are suffering greatly right now? But I also think that it's important for those of us as well in regards to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Because without the resurrection of the, from the dead, where would our hope be, believer? Where would it be? What would we put our hope in? I know a lot of people that put their hope in 
crazy things, and every single time they will fail them because they are not living. So, as I was again meditating on this little phrase, living hope, I started to wonder why, over the course of history, there's been so many attacks on just the resurrection from the dead. There's not very many people that would dispute the fact that Jesus was a real man, that he did die, and that he was buried. But then, as soon as that happens, there's all sorts of crazy theories and perspectives on what happened to Jesus' body. And if you ironically think about it, no one actually talks about like the fact that the body was in there. They're saying that it was gone. Even in the New Testament, we see that the Jews came up with some crazy theories about what had happened to Jesus' body. No one really disputes that Jesus' body was not in the grave. And why do you think that is, that Satan probably uses that as one of the main reasons for us to get our uh, attack on our faith? And I think it's this. It's because it's where our hope is, NBC Church. It's our living hope. It's a living hope because he is alive today and he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we have this living hope that is interceding for you today? Or do you believe that the tomb still holds Jesus' body? So as gifts of this new life in Jesus, we've been given a living hope. And then the next gift that we receive is an unfading inheritance. So read in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So let me quickly define some of these terms. Uh, imperishable means that it endures or lasts forever. Undefiled, made not, or not made corrupt or impure or unclean, unfading. It will never wither, grow dim, or lose its beauty or glory. How amazing is this? This inheritance that we get stands in stark contrast to all the perishable things of this world that will lose their beauty, that will lose their glory, that will rust and fade away. This, this language that's used here brings to mind what Jesus taught about when he talked about how moths corrupt and thieves can steal and that rust can destroy. And I have to believe that Peter was actually really thinking about that teaching when he wrote this down. The inheritance that you and I have received is impervious to any attempts by anyone in this world to take it away. And it will remain uncorrupted for all of eternity. This idea of inheritance, when we think of inheritance, it's a lot of like something that I get from my parents or a family member. And this became especially true to me, especially with our parents passing, of how my inheritance 
was all the things in a little 1,000-square-foot apartment. And it was all old books and furniture and clothes, CDs. Those of you over 30 can explain it to those younger. But that was it. And what we did with all of those was we crammed them into the back of a rental car and drove it down to a donation center or a trash dump. They're gone. It's going to rust, and it will eventually be gone. It's meaningless to my parents now. And in some ways, it's meaningless to me. My parents' health rusted and faded away. So will yours. Don't put your help in that. Don't put your hope in the things of this world. That will eventually fade away. Put your hope in the unfading inheritance that God has promised you that you will have for all of eternity. One of the other things that I think is important for us to talk about, there's this little play on words on inheritance here that's both in the Old Testament and the New. And so in Ephesians, Paul speaks of God's inheritance and our inheritance. So the the inheritance that we're talking about right now. So in that, he, he talks about the inheritance that God receives through redemption. And what is that inheritance? It's you. It's me. It's us, Embassy Church. God repeatedly says that you are my inheritance. Have you ever wondered what God gets out of redemption? And while we will benefit from redemption by avoiding hell and condemnation, and gaining eternal life with Christ and his people. God's ultimate reward is you. You are what he desires. So then what do we get out of redemption? The the ultimate gift is fellowship with God, the purpose for which you and I were created. We were made in God's image to commune with him forever and ever, and that is what you inherit. This is the inheritance that God has given to his people through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And nothing, no one can take it away. And I think that serves as such a wonderful reminder to encourage us in our fight of faith. As we are bound to lose many things in this life. And when you do, will you mourn them as your greatest treasure? Or will you see them as little knickknacks that cannot diminish the inheritance that you get in God? As Calvin said, God offers this inheritance to rise you above the world's trials and temptations. So our last and final gift is that of a protected salvation. So I'm going to repeat it. Because of God's great mercy, he's given this, this gift of new life, new birth. And what comes along with that new life are three things. The first one we talked about was the living hope that we have. An unfading inheritance. And then that of a protected salvation. 
Peter goes on and says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is the who referring to? It's all of us that are saved. Nobody can steal your salvation from you. Nobody can snatch you from God's hand at all. And this stands as a strong word about assurance. Peter's message here is so clear. As a Christian, you are completely secure. God has a firm grip on you and he will not let you go. Your salvation in Jesus Christ is unshakable and cannot be taken away. You are truly, truly secure. Peter shares this assurance so that you and I can endure the trials that we'll inevitably encounter in our life. But I do think that it's unfortunate that many of us, myself included, really truly fail to appreciate these incredible gifts that God has given to us. And I think that there's sometimes that we even forget about them altogether. Or other times, as I've heard some of you talk about, you just struggle with like believing that they're truly yours. Again, remember that Peter is writing this to those who are going through suffering, and it's as if he's saying this to them. I want you to get your perspective off of your current circumstances and onto eternity. I want you to understand that the, the inheritance that you have, you have an inheritance outside of this world. And I want you to understand that this inheritance is being guarded, and you are being guarded as well. Embassy, here's my heart. This life is hard and difficult. But while God has us here, he still deserves to be praised. He, in his great mercy, has given us a living hope that we, cannot, uh, that we can look to today, even in the midst of our own suffering. And because of the gifts that he is giving to us, we do not need to look for scraps on the, the table uh, floor when he's invited us to the banquet feast. Have hope, not in the things of this world, but in our living hope that sits at the right hand of the Father today and is in, interceding for you. This living hope understands your pain and your suffering. He can empathize with you because he too has gone through that. He walked this earth and he breathed this air and that walking and breathing led him to the cross where he suffered the most excruciating thing that you could possibly imagine to be eternally or to be separated from God. He went through that so that you and I could, by God's great mercy, extend to us the new life of salvation through Jesus Christ. My hope is, as I close in these last verses, that they would ring true in your hearts and that they would give you comfort when we go through our suffering. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Embassy Church, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much that you have compassion and mercy on us and that we as your enemies, you extended new life to us and given us salvation that we can then have this living hope in Jesus Christ and we pray that you would help us believe that it is alive, that he is alive and that no matter what our circumstances might be, that we can always, always praise you. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that it would do its work in our hearts today. We ask this in your name. Amen.